No, thank you again for having me. I appreciate it. And I, I particularly love this topic uh, because it intersects so much that uh, I do in my work, uh, not only rabbinically, but also as a technology futurist. I, I love biotechnology. It's a very exciting field to uh, be involved in. I particularly like regenerative medicine. And uh, I want to sort of touch upon what this means, the body 2.0, because we're totally reimagining the body right now. Uh, in fact, we're in an age where uh, uh, flesh is becoming word, which is an important and an ir somewhat ironic reversal of certain notions in Western culture. We're starting to look at the body as uh, an assemblage of signals and signs, what we might call bioinformatics. Um, and that's changing how we think about the body, its composition, how we think about uh, disease, how we think about aging, and even how we think about our own mortality. And all of those facets of the human condition, which have so long been held to be uh, uh, unavoidable, undeniable, uh, are now being thrown into question. So just in, in very recent uh, uh, months, there's been a book published here by uh, David Sinclair, who's uh, at Harvard Medical School, entitled Lifespan, and the subtitle is Why We Age and Why We Don't Have To. So we're, we're reaching, we're, there's many books like this. This is not the first by any means. It's just one of a host of examples that's challenging this notion, these notions of aging and also of disease and of death and how we're maybe uh, uh, changing our relationship with the body in fundamental ways. So uh, we're gonna go very deep into some uncharted territory and actually, um, when I woke up today, I, I pulled a few books down from my bookshelf and just opened them uh, and, and uh, found some striking passages that I thought would be very appropriate. I've never taught before, so you'll have to uh, bear with me. But uh, one, of the, one of the notions that we have is that there are signs of life that we have in the world, signs of life life signs, sometimes we talk about biomarkers and so on. And also we see that there are uh, uh, creations that occur, all creation rather occurs through uh, the use of signs, specifically letters. We talk about how B'Tselel in particular knows how to permutate the Hebrew letters. This is why it's very Parsha appropriate if you're following along in the Torah reading uh, for this week's Torah portion. Uh, knows how to permutate the letters from which are create the heavens and the earth. So if you know about semiot semiotics, the science of signs, then you can actually create new things in the world in very, very important ways. So our sign of light uh, is actually going to be uh, alluded to in Kabbalah by looking at the set of 22 Hebrew letters and asking which is the life sign of the 22 Hebrew letters. So I'll give you a little, a little hint. Uh, the word for life in Hebrew, of course, is chai, and that's 18 in gematria. So what is the 18th letter? in the Hebrew, Hebrew alphabet. So if you think about it for a moment, I know everyone's probably muted, but it's the letter tzaddik, or sometimes we call it tzaddik, tzaddi. So the, it's the, and tzaddik means a, a righteous one, of course, is sort of our general translation of it. 
but the the idea of the life sign has to do those who are most alive are the tzaddikim the righteous in every generation it's the 18th letter but there's a very deep secret about this letter that the Ari tells us he says actually that the character the written character of the letter tzaddik the 18th letter by itself is simply just written as one hebrew letter that has the numerical value of 90. but he says if you generate the name it can go through four successive stages. So one is just the written character alone, but then if you start to spell it out, the milui, you're spelling it in some way, you write sadi and then dalit, just sad. And so that's 94, because you add it four more for the dalit. And if you spell it one more stage, you have sadi, which some people refer to this letter as sadi which is now 104, because now you add it a yud. So tzadi, dalit, yud, there's three, three levels. So he says as follows, as you're generating the, the full expression of this letter, which is our life sign, the first three stages that we have all go together because they all have something in common that they're incomplete. Only the fourth stage of spelling this letter completes it and it's actually what attaches the letter tzadi to the letter right after it. What comes after the 18th letter, the 19th letter, which is kuf. So if you take tzadi and attach it to the kuf, it becomes tzadik. So there's, there's very important that it has to connect with what comes after in order to be completed. It's only fully completed when it has all, all four letters all together. And the, the, the first three stages that are incomplete, though, which is the 90, 94, and 104, what happens if we add all of those up, the summation of those first three incomplete spellings? So they equal exactly 288, which is rapak. It's the number of sparks that the results says fall in the primordial breaking of the vessels within creation. In other words, the original exile, the original uh, dysfunction in creation, the original fractional, fractional uh, uh, zation of reality, that reality becomes broken apart and disconnected and estranged and alienated. This is deep into the phenomenology of exile, is called Shvirata Kalim in Kabbalah, that there was originally a, a, sta a state where like the, the light with it, that was projected from the divine was, was too overpowering for the vessels that was trying to hold it and it resulted in the breaking of these vessels. That primordial breakdown of vessels is reflected in our world also in the breakdown of our bodies. So the, our bodies break down also and there are three specific successive stages of breakage that occur. And they correspond to these first three levels that we have. And they relate to three, three particular generations that we read about in the beginning of uh, Bereshit. So who, who are the three generations? So first of all, we have Adam and Eve, Adam and Chava. And we're told if they could have just uh, uh, survived what is usually referred to as the marshmallow experiment in psychology. I will give this child a marshmallow, right? You can have one marshmallow now, but if you can if you can hold back for a half hour, you can have two marshmallows. So they were told, you know, don't eat from this tree of life, uh, excuse me, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Uh, but if you can just wait a few hours until it's Shabbos, 
then you'll be able to eat and it'll be fine. But they didn't, they didn't pass this particular uh, test, which relates to, amongst other things, executive function. And as a result of it, uh, death enters into the scene in the world. So the first problem we have, the primordial fracture is like, is we become mortal. That's the, the original problem that, that occurs. And in the Zohar, which is this classic work of Kabbalah we spoke about a little bit last time, and I showed you an old copy of it. Uh, it talks about how uh, there is nothing in the Torah that's ultimately undesirable, and and therefore even something like death must have somewhat of a different meaning from how we normally associate it. So the way it's understood in a section of the Zohar called the Idra, the Idra Rabbah, so the Greater Assembly, it's like a, a, its own text within the Zohar itself, is that it means to descend from a higher level to a lower level. And as you go down these, these various gradations and levels, it's like moving down in a system or series of worlds, which are like various referential frames. And the way it's interpreted both in, in, in the, the commentary tradition on the Zohar and also in Hasidut is that death really means uh, the second law of thermodynamics in science today. Second law of thermodynamics is known as entropy. And it's basically saying that things go from higher energy states to lower energy states. It's why if you go outside on a cold uh, winter evening like it is tonight here in Vermont and you have a cup of coffee, your cup of coffee will rapidly cool off because the temperature gradient differential between what's in your cup of coffee and the surrounding cold atmosphere, it's gonna try to equal, equal, reach equilibrium. So it's gonna trade that, that, that information till it all becomes the same. And that's about, so energy seems to decline over time. Uh, and that's very, very important. Like unless new energy is being put into the system, it declines over time. And this has something to do with, with death. So if you're at like a higher energy level, so things are fine, but then there becomes some kind of problem that disconnects you to that level of energy and you then descend to the world below that or at a lower level of energy. And this can happen repeatedly over and over again. You can keep dying in a higher world and descending into a lower world as it's described in Kabbalah. But entropy also has a very different meaning to it, uh, which, when it which is taken in the world of biosemiotics, looking at the body as a collection of signals and signs, like a language, a complex, complex language that describes our condition. And this is what we call information entropy. This is where uh, we're playing a game of telephone and we're talking around the room and I start with, you know, please uh, pass the Kugel and the message comes back to me like who, you know, uh, go get my cell phone. And we don't know how it changed, you know, it just got, it got, it got all messed up along the way. And we see that we are very anxious about information entropy, uh, rabbinically speaking, Judaically speaking. So for instance, we methodically and consistently check over uh, Sifrei Torah, Torah scrolls, our mezuzah scrolls, our tefillin scrolls, to make sure that every single letter is where it should be, is fully formed, is not broken in any kind of way. We don't want any information loss. Sometimes we talk about with uh, uh, music files, there are what are called lo lossless flack files. They're uncompressed. So like we don't want to lose any fidelity of the information signal. If you're listening to this really great music, you want to be conveyed in its fullest. And yet any reference to death in the Torah is really 
an expression of entropy where there's also some, some loss that occurs. And we see very, very explicit examples of this. So for instance, some may recall when Moshe Rabbeinu passes and we go into the next generation with Yeshua that we, we lose a whole ream of halachot and they have to be reconstituted. That somehow the loss of the previous generation means like forgetting a whole bunch of information that you have to try to recover. You, you call your computer technician, you go down to Staples or something and say, can you please recover the information off my hard drive? It's, uh, it's not accessible right now because it seems to have uh, disappeared or withdrawn. So this, this is the original breaking of the vessels and it means an information loss. And from it flows a whole series of other consequences. So in stage two, we have, uh, we have the setup, the Medrash tells us with Avram, and we find that his son, Yitzhak, that they looked exactly alike. There was no differentiating them between generations, no generational difference. And people were constantly confusing who is who, such that they would uh, see Yitzhak in the street. They would say, hey, it's Avraham. And they would see Avraham in the street. And it was really Yitzhak. Total confusion between the father and son here. So Avraham prays for aging. Uh, how, how fortunate for those who sell Dead Sea products, you know, in Israel, right? Like you have all these great skin creams and things like that, that we can go buy to try to, to uh, create all these wonderful anti-aging markets uh, for, for creams and moisturizers and so on to try to deal with that. That's all thanks to Avram, but we, we're not so thrilled about this setup with aging. And we might say that aging also comes from uh, as a direct consequence for the same thing that causes death. It's some kind of information loss because after all, all the information that we needed to constitute your body originally is still in your body. So why can't you regrow an arm or regrow a, a kidney, right? You grew it once, it's there somewhere, right? That information, it just temporarily is inaccessible. Right. So the inaccessibility of the information or the fact that the information becomes corrupted in some way means that things aren't functioning properly. So that also is what relates to aging. But then we, we go to the next generation. And, and so the, the Medrash tells us also that with uh, Isaac, with Yitzhak, that the, the, the people would just expire in the world. They would they would die. And there was like no forewarning of this. And therefore, he prayed for disease. In addition to the aging, he prays for disease so that we have some signaling to do tshuva, try to uh, you know fix our lives up and so on in the end. So it's getting worse and worse. As we can see, we have three, three different individuals here that all come as like a set and they, they actually are what are creating aging, disease and death. And that's what we think of as the body during the span of exile in the world. And so there's something about redemption that seems to want to reverse that process. Thankfully, we get to the fourth character in this play, and that's Yaakov. And Yaakov's the first one who prays for healing. And we actually see that, uh, that uh, he is identified uh, with, with uh, a certain quality of uh, an aesthetic quality we call Tiferet, beauty, uh, especially when his name changes to Yisrael. And so we have Tiferet Yisrael, right? The beauty of Israel and the root Tiferet is actually a permutation of the word refuah. It's the same, same root as refuah, healing. 
is in this word tiferet. So there's something of an aesthetic quality, a kind of harmonization that needs to occur in order to rectify uh, and repair uh, not only disease, but aging and even death. Like he's got to fix all of the other three levels that we had. Now, let me remind us what we started with, since this is a whole long Megillah to get to this point. We started by saying that the sign of life, the 18th letter, tzadi, tzad, tzadi, tzadik, with, with its uh, four, four ways of expanding it out, uh, that the first three have to do with these 288 sparks, these fragments that occur in creation. And that defines what we call Olamato, a world of chaos. So chaos is like distortion in a communication channel, right? Static. We talk about noise to signal ratios on the line. This cell phone call is terrible. I can't hear you whatsoever. Terrible static on the line. So that static creates all the dysfunction that results in the aging and disease and death. And so cleaning that signal up is part of the restoration process that we have. And so there are these 288 sparks that define the world of chaos. So, and the world of chaos is all about imbalance. It's like going to extremes, like someone who overreacts to everything. So sometimes our bodies overreact to things as well, right? Like I go too far or I don't go far enough. Each one is like, is, it's kitsoni, is, is very much an extreme of some way. So it's an imbalance. It's a lack of balance. That's what defines the world of chaos. In fact, this is how the Arizal understands the episode where a, a certain individual comes to Hill and Shammai and asks to have the whole Torah taught to them while standing on one foot so that they can convert to Judaism. And he says, standing on one foot, al regal achat, is the world of chaos. It's imbalanced. It's very easily knocked over, just lacking stabilization. And the stabilization means you're going to tend to exaggeratedly sway one way or the other. So the Arizal says, what are the two types of of ex excess that we have. Well, it's it's the clue is in this this number 288, which is our chaos that we're talking about in our medical condition. It's the summation of givura, which means strength or might, and chesed. Givura is 216 and chesed is 72. Chesed is loving kindness. But if we were to try to translate those into like their abstract qualities, loving kindness is a force of attraction and expansion. In fact, in early Kabbalah, chesed is called gedula, legadel, to grow, to expand. And gevura, ezehu gibor, who is, has this, this might or strength, misha kovesh yitzro, one who holds back. So sometimes I'm expanding when I shouldn't expand excessively. And sometimes I hold back when I'm supposed to be reaching out. Each one leads to a kind of imbalance and disconnection. Of course, the harmonization, which is the link between the two, is what Yaakov represents because he's Tiferet. That's the harmony between these two extremes. So how does this materialize in the body? So the classic example of expansion out of control, growing out of control, is like a tumor, a cancerous tumor, especially one that metastasizes and spreads all throughout the body. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger, leaving no room for what is 
other than it crowding out other organs. What, what is a situation where you have the opposite extreme where you're not extending as much? It's called disconnect. Like, let's say separation of joints, separation of communication between cells, separation of communication in, inside of cells. Like it's severed in some way. It's withholding. Like I, I, my brain is not talking properly anymore to my legs because there's a severance of the spine and therefore this person is unable to walk, God forbid, right? Th those are both the imbalances. So we can't have any part of the body overextending itself and we can't have anyone being cut off. That is all the, the three stages of aging, disease and death, the first three spellings of this sign of life, the tzadi, tzad, tzadi. Uh, and then we get to the, the fourth one. So the Arizal says, when you, when you finish going through all the chaos, you reach the tzaddik, the righteous one. And the righteous one is all about reconnecting and is all about tikkun, rectification. So the rectification of the body, that's the healing. That's what the tzaddik does is to rectify us. And that's, that's really remarkable, like to see this process. He even says some other really wild things that if you have the whole process of uh, 288 sparks, if you elevate them all, um, it's, you're actually building a mishulash, a triangle or a pyramid rather of 288 levels. So you have like one spark on top and the bottom level has 288 sparks and you build up all the way from one to the next. And that actually creates a, generates a figure that has 41,616 units to it, which amazingly, Darizal points out, is the same thing as Sadiq, the righteous one, squared. The word Sadiq is 204. If you, 204 times 204 is also 41,616. And it's an incredibly rare phenomenon in mathematics called Pell's numbers that this occurs. So there's something very deep going on between these whole things. And what he wants to tell us is that, that the, the, uh, the pyramid of these 288 levels is like what we call a histalshalut phenomenon. Histalshalut we usually talk about as like a chain, a chain reaction, but it's actually an evolutionary phenomenon. It would be like the closest word that we have for something that evolves biologically. And so the idea is when, when all the chaotic evolution occurs with all the chaos creating mutations and so on, when that's complete and you see all of that in succession, which is this giant pyramid that we might call our biological history. When it's complete, then the tzaddik comes and is able to connect it all together. And that inter that connection is called inter-inclusion, hitalalut. Hitalalut is inter-inclusion, which is like a holographic principle where every element is found within every other element. And this is very much being seen today in what we call systems biology. And the classic example of it would be like every one of our 50 or 100 trillion cells contains within it a copy of our entire human genome, our DNA. So there's like in small, there's a sense of every, like every part of us containing the whole of us as a copy. So that's, that's, that's the squaring effect of, of 204 squared. Obviously, this is a lot of technical stuff up front to try to understand what's going on here with uh, chaos and its 
uh, rectification, but we will take it just a little step further to understand deeply what our world is like. And I'm going to give you some concrete examples of how this plays out in the world today. There's a statement in the in the Zohar also, where it says "Guf ubrit hashvinan chad," that the body and the the covenant of circumcision are considered one. That's that's the simple statement. What what it has. Uh, in many, many texts, particularly in, in, uh, in, in the writings of the Shalah, who I mentioned last, last uh, week, he talks about this in very interesting ways. He points out that the, uh, the Egyptification process that we experience, our confinement, is not just the confinement in the physical world, in the matrix of this reality that is generated all around us that we call creation, uh, it is also more specifically the what sometimes we think of as the prison house of the body, and the, specifically the finitude of the body, that the body is mortal, that it's subject to aging and disease. That is a personal Egypt in a way that we are released from the limits of the body, even our biological limits, which is part of Pesach, by figuring out how to hack our own biology, which is something the Torah says we can definitely do. And so the, the image that we have of health that's related to the body, again, we said the word tiferet has within it this root pei atlef resh, which is a kind of beauty or harmony. And it's a permutation of the same root in Hebrew, which is refuah, right? So refuah is resh pei aleph, same letters, just a different permutation. So there's something about the body that has to do with harmony and systems. It's like the organization of the organs of the organism. You can hear all how those all sound alike, those words even in English, right? All these things have to blend like in a beautiful and harmonious way. And that's, that's Yaakov and Yisrael. Those are the figures that represent this particular capability. That's this uh, systems biology, thinking of it all interrelated. Every facet of the body, every facet of our biology is deeply, deeply interrelated. And since this is the figure of Jacob, of Yaakov, we have another interesting uh, verse that's, that's read many places in Jewish mysticism, which is Ella, the Ela told Yaakov, Yosef. These are the generations of Jacob, Yaakov, and Yosef, Joseph. And everything Rashi tells us that happens to one of them happens to the other. There's some, there's some kind of really interesting mirroring phenomenon between father and son here. And in, in this statement of the Zohar, that the, that the body and the covenant, the brisk covenant, are considered one, there's some deep union, it says that actually Yosef has to do, he's the secret of the covenant itself. And in fact, he's known as Yosef HaTzadik. He's, he's the, the, the righteous one. And the secret of the covenant is knowing where and how it's appropriate to connect or disconnect. That's what the covenantal relationship, it particularly relates to the procreative organs that's for marriage and reproduction. So if we're going to reproduce the body, there's something very deep that's going on, like the procreative organs are the capacity to reproduce the body. And it's all about maintaining the right connections. Well, this is true biomedically, even within the body. 
I have to make sure the right things are connecting in the right places and that I'm channeling the right information. So in early works of Kabbalah, we see that actually that this quality of in the soul is called yesod, that means foundation. And it sometimes is read yud sod, that there's like this, the yud is like a little like bit of information and sod means secret. There's like secret little packets of information that are traveling back and forth all over in exchange within our bodies and also to create new bodies, to have progeny, to have children, to have offspring. And specifically, the, the expression is there are kaf bet oti oti so there are 22 letters that are associated with the yesod, the procreative organ of both the man and the woman. And actually, we're told that, that those create, the Arizal says that, that the 22 that come from the male and 22 from the female, to, in total, that gives us 42, 44, excuse me, that's 44 factors which would be the dam of Adam, the blood of the word Adam. Adam is read Aleph plus the word dam. Dam is like the physical component of ourselves. And then actually he says there's a unit, which is an or ha'ola al-kulana, an all-inclusive unit that, that is specific to the whole set of 22 that, that, that uh, is like adds in a certain sense, like a, a 23rd sign. We know, of course, the human body, we talk about 23 chromosomes, but those combine, and this is where you have what's called XX and XY chromosomes to give you gender. He says those combine to form the Aleph, that he says the Aleph is like the, this extra sign on top from the the father principle contribution. And then there's a partition, this, the line cut diagonal across that forms the Hebrew letter Aleph. And there's another sign below, which is from the mother. And those two combine together. So instead of having a total of 46, there's 45, which is the numerical value for Adam, Adam. So there's something very deep about signs of life, even relating to what we think of as, as DNA. We can see other wonderful facets, like for instance, if you take the Hebrew letters and you continue them beyond the letter Tuf, there are 22 Hebrew letters in what's considered the masculine form of the alphabet, the Hebrew letters, but then there are what are called five final letters or Mansapak. Mansapak are these extra letters and they actually continue the number system that we have in Hebrew. Normally like Aleph is one, Beit is two, and we get to Tuf is 400, and then you run out of you run out of numbers. How do you keep going? So the answer is that the final forms of the letters keep going. They keep going in the hundreds column until we get to a final tzaddik, the tzaddik sofit, the last tzaddik. So instead of like the movie, The Last Samurai, this is like the last tzaddik. This is like, this is actually the figure of Mashiach. And the last tzaddik has something to do with like creating the last like connections, connecting it all back together again. And that, that, that number that you get for the final letter of the expanded Hebrew alphabet is now has 27 letters. The very last letter of which is the tzaddik sofit, the final tzaddik, it equals 900, which is the numerical equivalent of the word reshet, which means a network networking everything together, connecting everything together. How do we lay out this network so everything is connected together? But then where do you go from there? So we're actually told, and very interestingly, ek yordof echad elif, how can one chase a thousand? 
it's an explicit verse in the Torah. It's actually where we learn that Aleph is 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 echad because the Torah is unvocalized. So how do we know that it says there? How does one chase a thousand? Maybe it says one chases Aleph. That's how we. That's actually how we learn that the numbering system that Aleph is one. Otherwise, how do we know? This is also asked by. Uh, uh, the sages in the Talmud when when they are confronted by a certain person who wishing to convert. <laughs> like, how, how do you know which order the Hebrew alphabet works in, right? This is the, the passage. But Aleph can be one, but it also can be read Aleph, a thousand. So we have this idea that comes from Sefer Yitzir, one of the earliest works of Kabbalah, which is the beginning is wedged in the end. And the end in the beginning. So if I've gotten all the way from one to 900, where do I go? I go back to Aleph again, which is a thousand, and connect the beginning and the end together. Now, what happens if I, uh, what if what if I fashion these things into, let's say, one of these name necklaces that you would get in Israel, right? You ask for all 27 letters to be on your name necklace. So there's a mathematical structure that is apparent here that has to do with one tens and hundreds. Let's say that I have uh, in the outer ring, I have all the letters from Aleph until Tet, which are the ones column, one until nine. And they're the outer loop of my necklace. And I evenly space out those letters on that necklace. And now I'm gonna overlap and do a second pass spiraling inward in my necklace such that I'm gonna link up right next to the Aleph, I'm gonna have the letter Yud because that's one and then 10. And then I'm gonna go all the way around completing the tens column, which gets me up to a regular Tzadi or Tzadik, which is 90. And I now begin my third pass, which is my third loop inside this, which is going to begin with the letter Kuf. Letter Kuf is a hundred. So what I wanna now like match together is I have one, 10 and a hundred. Aleph, Yud, and Kuf. And I'm going to match Beit and Chaf and Reish, 220, 200, 330, 300. And I'm doing three rings like that till I get all the way to the 900. And where do I do? I have to link from the beginning back to the end, or rather from the end back to the beginning again, which means I've got to cross over two levels because I've done three circles one inside the next on my name necklace. And I've got to clasp the beginning and the end, which means I've got to skip over the two intervening levels. That actually creates the form of a double helix. That's the basic form of DNA that we see throughout the universe. So there's incredible uh, correlations uh, that we find in terms of biosemiotics, seeing the body in terms of a series of signs, very, very pervasive. And we want to try to see what the uh, consequences of those are. So what again, the 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 consummate righteous one, the tzaddik, is Yosef, and his name means Losif to add. So he can add signs to the body. And actually, that's the secret. We're going to talk very deeply about this of, of what we call uh, uh, gene editing. Like the ability to like change things in the body. And this is more prevalent than ever before. If anyone's taken like the first COVID vaccine, you know that that you may know that the technology, which is the first time this is being used in a vaccine, actually is is in a certain sense introducing something new into the body and changing it on a on a bioinformatic level 
that's much more profound by design than what we've had before. And I'm, I, we could do a whole hour just on that, but I'm, that's not my topic, but you could go read up on it and see this as an application to it. So it's low sif. So I'm gonna add more signs to the body in order to change the body and, and recalibrate it for its balance and potentially to be able to uproot the aging and disease, the disease, the aging and the death components such that like the like uh, uh, we ultimately get everything uh, reconnected. So we might even call then the tzaddik is the connector in chief. And in fact, uh, many uh, bio, uh, bio, biological researchers today are looking at what's called the interactone. It's, it's like the interaction of all the different facets of our, our biology. How, how do they affect us? How does diet and exercise and hormones and electricity and uh, uh, genomics and epi, the epigenomic, uh, epigenomic uh, genomic um, research that's going on? How does this all, how does it all interconnect, right? Because you can't just figure it out looking at one thing uh, by itself. You have to see it as a living condition. Of course, the tzaddik chai, the tzaddik likes to do things in, in, in vivo, in real life, not in vitro. In vitro, we kill things, and we just look at dead tissue, like on a on a uh, in a in a in a petri dish, right? Or maybe we have living cells, but it's not the same as a living organism. There's something about seeing the whole of the person in their living being that shows something that we sometimes miss by just looking at a part that doesn't quite get you there to the entire whole. So. Uh, the, the text that I picked up today that I thought would be very uh, interesting to, uh, to dip into actually is from a work that comes from the uh, grandson of the uh, uh, Baal Shem Tov, and it's the Degel Machanei Ephraim. And uh, this particular work, which was published in 1810, he, he himself lived, the author lived from uh, 1748 to 1800, so it wasn't published in his life. Uh, and he has wonderful... Uh, wonderful insights in this particular text. And on this week's Parsha by, by Divine Providence, I opened it up and there was something very relevant to uh, our discussion here. And it's talking about the composition of the uh, Mishkan. And it says something very bizarre. It says, uh, that the work was sufficient for all the work that they had to do to make it. It seems really bizarre. In fact, some commentators want to say maybe the materials were sufficient for all the work they had to do to make it. Why was the work sufficient for all the work they had to do it? And then even stranger, it changes. And in the very last word says, and there was even more, there was extra. What's this extra? So we had, we had the work was enough for all the workings of the portable sanctuary. And there was leftover, there was extra. Why would there be extra? Why go to add that seemingly superfluous detail in, into this whole thing? So uh, the Degel Machane Ephraim quotes in the Zohar, and he says, uh, He says that in the, in the uh, form of the Mishkan, of the portable sanctuary, we see the whole workings of creation. And I think I mentioned actually a little bit last time that uh, Isaac Newton, who studied Kabbalistic texts, actually saw this and became obsessed with it. So in fact, I have here a little 
show and so this is an entire book looking at Newton's calculations it's just like analyzing some of his writings about uh, how he thought he could discover all the laws of the universe from studying the architecture of the Mishkan of the portable sanctuary and if you want to know where Newton got it from this is great about zoom I can do show and tell very easily so uh, he he took he took uh, much of his insight into mystical literature from a work called Kabbalah the Natata, which was actually a Latin translation of Kabbalistic works. This is an original copy from 1678 here that you can see. Um, and it has all these fold out charts. It's unbelievable that the people who were learning this work, including Newton and Leibniz, who actually may have uh, been inspired to create calculus from this particular work. So this is one of the fold outs from hundreds of years ago. And uh, amongst other things that are described in here have to do with like how the there's these correspondences between the entirety of the Maisebre sheet, the workings of creation and and uh, and and the um, uh, and the architecture of the Mishkan. But there's one further step, and this is also here in the Degel Machane from although he's not really the first one to say it, it actually is something the Bavich Rebbe used to love to quote from Medrash Tantuma, which is that when it talks about making a portable sanctuary, it says, make for me a sanctuary and I will dwell within them, like not betocho, not within it. Meaning to say that we ourselves are the human subject. We ourselves are this, this portable sanctuary. The sanctuary is both a reflection of the cosmos, but it's also a reflection of the body. So there's this unbelievable parallelism that exists between how the body works and how the whole universe works. And actually the common science to both of them today is what we call information theory. Where most physicists now ascribe to some basic form of information theory, say the whole of the universe is just like a calculation of information exchange and that creates all of our physical laws. And it's the exact same information that is what's creating our body. In other words, it's just like permutation of letters, of signs, like the Hebrew letters that create the heavens and the earth. So he says an even more remarkable thing. Why does it say that there was enough there to create it? And then there was even more, there was a surplus, there was an excess. So he again quotes the Zohar, and he said, that the, the righteous, again, the righteous are our connectors in chief. They're our connectome. Those who are connecting everything together, interconnectome. How do we, that's, that's the, the covenant that links bodies together and links even between cell bodies, between molecular bodies or atomic bodies. It's linking them all together, interconnectome. That's our tzaddik. And through that, that creates a new heaven and a new earth. And it, it's specifically through this ability to be mechadesh, to come up with new insights in the Torah, actually changes the heavens and the earth. And the question is, is that true also in the body? Like we tend to think that we just have like a stable genome, that we have a certain like book of life, our gene sequence at birth, and it just stays static. And it turns out that's totally not true. <laughs> it changes over time. And you can watch it change over time. You can mute uh, certain things or you can cause things to be expression. You have things like uh, um, uh, uh, epigenetic phenomenon that will affect 
uh, expressions or silencing of, of genes. Now we have all kinds of very advanced tools that allow for precision gene editing like CRISPR, which stands for clustered regular interspersed short palindromic repeats, which is great at a late night party to repeat five times fast after imbibing a few of the Chaims. Um, so uh, there are all these fascinating things, which are basically like figuring out how to reprogram there's something written, right? There's something written, like knowing how to reprogram it, rewrite it, actually changes the heavens and the earth. So what is that in the body? What are the heavens and the earth? So midrashically and Kabbalistically, we find that the heavens is sometimes a reference to the neshama, the soul, and the earth is to the goof, the body. So this heaven and earth marriage is like a soul body marriage. And furthermore, we find particularly in the writings of the Maharal of Prague, that the soul element that we talk about is the tsura, is the form, and the, the body element is what we call the homer, the materiality, the material substrate. That's the body. Is, and, and if you really want to take this back, there's what's called Aristotle's four causes. There is something called the material cause, the formal cause, the efficient cause, and the final cause. The Vilnagon actually says they correspond to the letters of the Tetragrammaton, Yid K, Bav K, in one of his texts. Uh, but for right now, we're only talking about two of them. Like there is the material that we're made up of, and then there's our composition, our form, and that's soul and body. That's heavens and earth. Or like we said a little bit last time, even in Latin, you see this, that pater is pattern is father and mater is matter is mother or matrix. So the, 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 the union, the marriage of, of material and form or, or pattern and form is, is what we call mother and father connecting here. And that's what makes up our bodies. So let me ask you this question. How are we the same from moment to moment? Not only does like, do we have change in the underlying code, what's going on with us, but, but we're constantly changing in dramatic other ways. In fact, over a certain period of time, every single cell in your body gets replaced. It'd be like driving a car from the 1920s. And over time, you're replacing every part of it, right? New steering wheel, new tires, new upholstery, new engine. Like, is it the same car or isn't it, right? How does it, how does it have what we call the persistence of identity? And that car was never meant to be on the road 100 years later. And yet it can be if you keep replacing all of the parts. So interestingly, we, we now understand that that's what the body naturally does. And if we want to like hack into it, because there's a little bit of uh, extra, extra leftover beyond just the knowledge of how to build the Mishkan, build the tabernacle, build the sanctuary, build the body, there's this extra, this extra bit. And so we can be innovative with that extra bit to actually change things in profound ways. In fact, he says this extra word, this word for there being extra, v'hoter, is just a permutation of the words v'torah. That's how, he, how the Zohar then learns that through new insights in Torah, it actually creates new connections, which then results in changes both in the pattern, it'd be like changing our genomic pattern, and changing our material pattern, our body. Like, so the body 2.0 suggests that we're gonna have like something's changing in the soul, something's changing in the body dramatically. And it's all knowing how to read the letters that are permutated to create everything we have. And so if you look at something like the CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing system, there's certain opinions that suggest that there are about 50,000 known diseases 
Um, there have been articles I've seen that have cited as many as 32,000 of those as being monogenetic, meaning in the Torah scroll that is your DNA, there's one letter that's messed up, just one letter. And of course, that's enough to cause serious, serious problems. Uh, and so if you can go in and target that one letter and change it, delete it, replace it, et cetera, with the proper letter, then theoretically, this is a technique that's in the world here today. It's a new, a relatively new thing that would allow us to uproot 32,000 types of disease. And uh, if that sounds crazy to you, just consider this. In 1950, the sum total of all biomedical knowledge in the world was doubling every 50 years. Here in 2021, all medical knowledge doubles every 73 days compared to all human history. And it's going faster and faster. And you can read books like this on deep medicine to look at how AI is accelerating this process in incredible ways to figure out how to read the heavens and the earth. This is the screen here. And if actually I can do screen share, I wanna like actually uh, give a couple of examples. Do I have screen share privileges? Yeah, one second, you'll give them to me. So I wanna just give some concrete examples of this, how there's this literal flood of information and we're starting to see examples of it. So for instance, one of the leaps, Pesach means psika to leap, to jump. So one of the jumps behind, beyond the confinement of like the physical body with its disease, aging and death is seen very beautifully in this, this expression, in the future, a lame person, a person maximally incapacitated will have the ability to leap like a gazelle. So the Torah makes some audacious claims and we should be able to go on. My, my own teacher once told me that Mashiach gets in the morning, in addition to all of the prayers and Torah learning, Mashiach every day goes on and reads that day's science and technology news. So that, that was a, a tradition that I received that from my own teacher. So I will share screen here just uh, for a moment. And uh, I will show you this. So this is just a recent uh, reporting on uh, February 22nd at Yale Medical Center. Uh, they have now uh, advanced pretty far in the study where they've been able to use a patient's own stem cells uh, to uh, repair injured uh, spinal cords. So if you, if you search this up, when I'm not gonna go through the whole article because I see I'm rapidly running out of time, but this is an example of Asia delay Kyle Pisek. You have people walking. I've actually had a student myself who's received uh, treatments, regenerative medical treatments, who was in a wheelchair, who literally walked into my class years ago in Israel um, to the astonishment of everyone. So we're learning how to reprogram these things. They're pretty uh, astonishing. If you want to know where all these signs to, to read the letters that permeate the, he the heavens and the earth, the pattern, that's also accelerating in absolutely astonishing ways. This is a little bit of an example of it. This is the cost of like gene sequencing over time. The first human genome cost $3 billion to sequence. If you would have started in 2001, just 20 years ago, you'd be, you'd be out about $100 million to do it. And this doesn't go all the way to 2021. So I just, I just looked up, there's a Chinese company that commercially will sequence your genome right now for $100. So in 20 years, we've gone from $100 million 
to $100 for the exact same thing. It used to take an inordinate amount of time. It took over a decade to sequence the first one. Now you can get this done in a matter of minutes. And actually, not quite commercial, but in the lab, I've seen gene sequencing that can be done in 1 20th of a second for less money than it costs to flush a toilet. So uh, the acceleration is almost incomprehensible. It's very, very difficult for people to wrap their heads around it. And it's opening all kinds of worlds to see things that we couldn't see. This is, by the way, referred to in Kabbalah and Hasidut as Hanistarot Shem Elokeinu, that the, the concealed things are starting to become revealed that we couldn't see. Sometimes we couldn't see them as because they were too fast or too slow. So here's an example of, of this. Um, this is the, uh, October uh, of 2018. The world's famous camera can shoot 10 trillion frames per second. That is an unbelievable amount of stuff. I remember back years ago, I gave a variant of this talk at JLI. And uh, I, at the time, the first time I gave it, the fastest camera was doing um, 6 million frames per second. <laughs> and, and so since that was 2012. So since 2012, 2018, it's gone up to 10 trillion frames per second. So what can you see when you take that many pictures? Well, you can watch like metabolic processes happening inside of cells. You can watch the propagation of thoughts in the brain in real time. And um, we're seeing stuff fast and slow that are starting to understand all the signaling mechanisms in the body, all these letters that create the heavens and the earth of our human experience. And you can start to play around with things like this. This is actually my brain computer interface. Um, I can put this on my head, which I will now not do, but if we had a lot of time, I might do that. And I can actually control my computer with my thoughts. Um, you can fly a drone with this. You can, you know, uh, get people who are, have locked in syndrome can uh, move robotics and including wheelchairs uh, using their thoughts with one of these devices. Some of the most advanced ones can actually translate your, your, your inner internal monologue in your own brain into computerized speech in real time with a better than 90% accuracy rate. And it's getting even weirder now, actually, and I thought I would just show you this. Um, uh, oh, here we go. Yeah. Scientists communicate with people while they are lucid dreaming. So you actually can answer uh, math problems and learn stuff while you're dreaming. So if you ever put a book under your pillow and thought you could go to sleep and learn stuff. So it turns out we're, lead, we're, we're learning to read these signals with such exquisite ability. Actually, you'll see the device here. This woman is wearing it a little bit more elaborate than mine for hacking into your dreams. And actually, like you can even take like a, a fil take still images out of someone's dream, but you can actually get someone to take a test and they will respond. I think their first crop, they got about an 18% uh, correct answers back from people who took a test while they were in lucid dream states and were communicating back and forth with researchers. Again, February 22nd, 2021. Um, finally, like knowing how to use these signs also allows us to repurpose and recreate all facets in the body. Uh, like all kinds of body organs are being regenerated for the first time. Um, here's an example for people who suffer from, uh, 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 you know, um, all kinds of uh, uh, joint-related trauma, uh, especially if you have uh, 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 like uh, rubbed uh, cartilage that has gone away over time. And you can see that this this article just just touches on a few of the examples where this comes comes into play. It's again, there's like a lack of something going on. 
as a result of, uh, uh, of this particular problem. And you can imagine, uh, uh, like for instance, arthritic conditions, how that relates to uh, this. So at Stanford Medical, they've figured out how to regrow cartilage. Um, there's recent, in recent weeks, uh, how uh, to uh, deal with uh, uh, metastasized cancers with CRISPR. There are so many studies published every day, you can't handle them. But luckily we have things like uh, Watson, which is an AI uh, chatbot for, for medical uses that they, they advertise Watson that it can read. It's like, hi, I can read 5,000 medical studies a day and still see patients, which is things that is, is being really uh, uh, tra challenging for anyone to do. So that's a little bit of a taste of what is actually an enormous subject. And I'll just say that the forecast for the future is, is that we're supposed to have gradually the spirit of impurity leaves the earth, which means the lack of aging and disease and death, ultimately. That takes us first into an intermittent time, the body 2.0, where it says that a person who will be considered a young child if they live to 100 years of age, but ultimately that, that we, we become uh, immortal altogether. Of course, we, we found species of jellyfish that are already functionally immortal and figured out how to copy uh, using some of these gene editing tools, the genetic code that they have, it's like cut and paste that allows them to get younger at, uh, like on demand. And so reverse aging is a wild, wild frontier. And I would urge you to pay attention to it, especially how the Torah speaks about it. But I wanna take a few questions. I know it's like more than we can handle really in an hour. So thank you very much for listening. If anyone has some questions. Wow, unbelievable. Rabbi, I did not think you could outdo yourself, but uh, I think you just pulled it off. Hold on, if you don't mind, can you, um, if you don't mind, stop sharing your screen. Oh yeah, yeah sorry, I, I forgot. No, it's I was fine. There. It's fine. <laughs> Honestly, as, as as handsome as Michael, whatever his name was, we like to <laughs> we like to look at you even more. Um, but I I I have I'm going to be a little selfish here, just because I have. Uh, I mean, I'm the host also, so I got the mic privileges for right now at least. Um, I if if it's okay, I would like to ask you a few questions. Is that uh, is that cool? Please go for okay. it. Yep. So my my uh, kind of just putting together for myself what you said tonight. So start, the end was certainly about, about where the science is on this, but the beginning part was about where Kabbalah is on this and where Torah is on this and the idea that um, essentially life is, life is code and, and both aging and illness and death are basically aberrations or code that is kind of degrading, or I don't know if that's the right term, but there's theoretically, if it can go down, it can go back up and, and there's ways to, to make sure that it stops degrading and, and reverses course and, and stays perfect. And if on a physical level of cells are regenerating, well, that theoretically could keep on going. There's no essential reason that that at some point should get to the point of no return where it completely ends. Is that kind of sort of accurate? Perfect. That's absolutely accurate. Yes. Okay. So I'll just say this is, it's incredible. Number one, number two, it's incredible to see the, the, the last studies that you mentioned. Um, and you really have a thing that can read your thoughts and then move stuff around. That's legit. That actually works. My, my kids have used it to like play video games with their thoughts. All right. 
That's we, that's, we, but that's also letters, by the way. The author of you refers to that as otiotamakshava. They're letters of thought. So if we can figure out what those letters of thought are, what is the discrete like signature that happens in the brainstorm of your mind that refers to like push or pull or lift? And then you can begin to interpret that with great accuracy. And you can similarly do it with, uh, you know, uh, words, phrases, other images. You can, that's why you can like have a predictive analysis of what a person is thinking in their head. So, so how much of, how much of, um, of, of coding software development, like that, that type of, you know, artificial intelligence, computer, that, that field, how much of an influence has that had on this? Is it direct or indirect? Are they both pulling from the same place or is one affecting the other? So uh, it, I gave a talk years ago just on AI at JLI, but, but uh, uh, the, the highlights that's really important uh, is I mentioned the Maharal of Prague. And I mentioned that he talks about everything in terms of patterns of information and, and then the material substrate that those patterns become grafted onto. Right, that that's the marriage of heavens and earth, body and soul, male and female, many, many associations. That's dominant throughout his writing. In the world today, like the 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 sort of forerunners of all this stuff, in especially in like computation theory, are people like John von Neumann. Uh, von Neumann, who was at Princeton, was a direct descendant of the Maharal of Prague. And his, the central processing unit in every single computer around the world is uses something called the von Neumann architecture. Um, uh, alongside him, you have people like uh, Norbert Weinberg, who was at, uh, at, at uh, Harvard for many years. We got from him uh, like the precursors to a lot of stuff in neuroscience, machine learning, cybernetics, and so on. He was a direct descendant of the Maharal of Prague. He actually wrote a book called God and Golem. Marvin Minsky at MIT, who also was in a lot of these crossover fields, especially related to robotics, was himself also a direct descendant of the Maharal of Prague. And there's at least a dozen other very well-known theorists in a variety of these overlapping fields that have that like traditions going back. So much so that, by the way, one of the, fir the first supercomputer in Israel was called the Golem. Many people don't know that. And the golem is seen to be in much of sort of like history of science as the prototype for either AI, uh, robotics, or, or what we think of as synthetic biology. And it's basically programmable matter using letters to program matter to generate life. So when it says in the Talmud, Rabba Baragavra, that Rabba creates a human figure, he does that permutating letters. So we're seeing that we can actually boot up and manipulate uh, facets of life in this way. Furthermore, the Arizal, when he talks about reincarnation, that is something that can be scale-free, meaning it could be at the scale of a whole lifetime, like same soul in a different body, but it's also the same pattern of information in another embodied substrate. So every time my cells reproduce, one skin cell begets another skin cell, that's a kind of reincarnation. If I, if I 3D print a bioorgan, which by the way is going on, you can 3D print all kinds of bioorgans, which is wild. These disaggregate cells, self-aggregate and, and sync up. And um, there's just still a few hurdles before those are gonna be implantable, but a number of organs that have already been 3D printed for years. Like that's a kind of re-embodiment of the same pattern of information, which is a reincarnation, a Gilgul 
of sorts. So we have cellular Gilgulim, cellular reincarnations, organ Gilgulim, whole body uh, Gilgulim, etc. And you get, even get, there's even an entire work in Kabbalah that talks about what we think of as uploading consciousness. Like if you were worried about accidental death, Eliyahu Anavi is the secret of being able to upload your consciousness into the cloud and then download it into a new body on demand. That perhaps would help for like accidental death, even if we're biologically immortal, but that's a separate talk. This is mind blowing. All right. I, I have more stuff, more questions that I want to ask, but I want to open this up and I'm, I still have one more question that I'm going to ask at the end is the last question. I'm going to reserve that for myself again, rabbi privilege, but <laughs> I'm opening this up to, to anybody. Uh, go ask, jump in. Rabbi. Yes. Oh. Richard, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, rabbi, um, were they disciples of Maharal or descendants of Maharal? Descendants, sorry, descendants. If I well, you, said I, descendants, yeah, you, said you said descendants, descendants. I, I didn't know. Yeah, I, yeah, many many hundreds of years later, the the Maharal lived in the yeah. 16th century. 16th, yeah, yeah, yeah. So so they there's there's this unbelievable. Even academics who've studied this that are not religious at all have marveled how many, especially in like computer science, which relates to AI and all these other things, how many of the key Jewish uh, innovators are traceable, <laughs> known to be traceable to him in this particular way. So it's just a, an unbelievable thing that we're only starting to appreciate now. And there's been many, uh, many studies done on it. Let me ask you another quick question, a general question. Will these, um, will scientists, do scientists know that some of this comes from the Kabbalah? And will scientists then look toward the Kabbalah to figure out more, make leap, more leaps ahead? Or will this be like the Kabbalah say, see, we told you so, and blah, blah, blah. In other words, will the scientists look at the Kabbalah? Will the Kabbalah say we had this, you know, you know, thousands of years ago? Or does it really matter? I'm just wondering if they're going to look further into this and say, oh, we got this much from Maharal his descendants. What more is there to see in the Kabbalah? That's the question. Excellent question. So there, like right now, currently, because we don't fully merit it other than intermittently, most of how we understand this stuff is ex post facto, meaning after the fact, we like can look, we see something new in the world, we look for an example of it in Kabbalah, and we see that there's a kind of convergence that's going on. Right. Intermittently, we see actually examples of overlap, and I can quote you a whole list of scientists, including, you know, there, there's a transcription, partial transcription of interactions between the chief rabbi in Israel, Rav Cook, who my wife is, uh, is a distant relative of, and Einstein, when he was on his way back, he stopped in Tel Aviv, and they spoke about relativity and Kabbalah. So there, there are all kinds of interactions that, that have been recorded, like episodically, um, the, the, but it's still not what we ultimately are looking for. The ultimate is what's called Kabbalah Nevuit. It would be prophetic in some way, meaning predictive. Like I should be able to solve a new problem. Like I need to be able to deal with uh, a COVID-19 variation. I look into the Torah and I, I see a set of relationships and I figure out how to generate an algorithm based on that, that turns into uh, a bioinformatic tool that I then use to treat the problem. But we see that the interval between the, the disease and the cure is shrinking. We're even as, as painful as COVID has been to people, that we still uh, are, are, have discovered, I mean, never in human history, we had like hundreds of vaccines being developed concurrently, or done in such a small span of time. 
And my guess is as AI is being layered to this, it's, it's, it's going to climb faster and faster and faster. The expectation is as you move forward in time, you're going to see, you know, a thousand fold increase in capabilities in the next 10 years, uh, you know, a million fold in 20 years, et cetera. So uh, we're really in the time of exponential growth, which is the, the idea of we don't walk out of Egypt. The, the, the word Pesach is sikha, to jump. We jump beyond our limitations. And those jumps are exponential leaps, especially in bio, the biomedical field. And the best part about it also is it's cheaper because something like CRISPR-Cas9 took the cost of gene editing from like a million dollars for a setup down for about, you know, 1500 bucks to do, you know, like gene editing with that tool. It's so incredibly cheap that like, it's actually scary to uh, people who make money in the biomedical world <laughs> because it's ridiculously cheap to do uh, uh, um, CRISPR-related um, uh, trials or techniques or whatever it might be relative to what we've had before. And like we said, $100 genome today, $100 million 20 years ago. I, I expect that we're gonna see that more people globally will have access to healthcare ever before. And it'll be orders of magnitude better than the wealthiest of the wealthy could ever afford in it today in just a few years because of the pace that things are moving at. Amazing, amazing. Dr. Maxi, jump in. Thank you. So you mentioned this last week and uh, with what you're discussing this week, I think it's even more pressing to me. And that is who's minding the ethics of all of this? All oh, of this yeah. is lovely, yes. but I'm sitting here, I've thought of all kinds of ways this could be used in very horrific ways. So who are the ethics police and are they Torah based? Right. That, I mean, that's actually where Torah plays a very pivotal role. As I said last time, and my general like short answer standing on one foot is that not everything that can be done should be done. And we're seeing that already. It's one thing to, uh, to uproot a, a monogenetic disease using CRISPR. It's another thing to try to splice in uh, the genes that allow spiders to create spider silk such that human skin would have the, the, the durability and interpenetrability of spider silk for, let's say, super soldiers that would have the stopping power that would be greater than a Kevlar vest. Not sure we want to do that. <laughs> it sounds interesting, but uh, not sure we want, to, like, we want to do that just because we have the capabilities to do that. And I, truthfully, in today's day and age, one of the things that bothers me the most is people have no idea how easy it is to get a hold of these tools, how dis disseminated they are, and what they're really capable of. There are high school students who do CRISPR experiments. There are genetically modified goldfish sold in pet stores. It depends which state you're in. You know, it is really remarkable. And so I, I worry a lot less about a near earth object crashing into the earth for some kind of, you know, asteroid Armageddon, a zombie apocalypse, or even nuclear holocaust. I would be more concerned about the bioethics today. We're really in the age where we need to really focus on bioethics at the same time the response rate to problems, we're creating more problems than ever before, but we're also creating a faster response to those problems. But yes, this should become par for the course that we have to get into the bioethics of this stuff much, much more. It's gotta be part of the public conversation. And Torah, I believe, can uniquely inform that conversation 
in, in tremendous ways, which is why I sometimes would give an entirely separate talk just about the bioethics thing. Usually I try to freak everyone out. And then in the recovery period, we talk about the bioethics stuff. This at least should get everyone to want to study about the bioethics piece, but you're So, right. Sir, but that's my follow-up question. What can someone like myself do to make sure that Torah ethics are being applied as these technologies are developed? But as you've already pointed out, I mean, my grandson who's in ninth grade in biology, they're already doing, you're right, they're doing CRISPR experiments. And so what can we do to assure that ethical connection? Right, so I, I, the first thing is like to really talk about the conversation having like at least immersed somewhat in the Torah literature on bioethics, which everything can be done like in a, in a conditional you know, way, like context really matters. And there's always like a, a deliberation, a weight, you know, that hangs. One of the beautiful things about Jewish law that informs this is that there seems to be like constellations of opinions that where we network knowledge and all of those things pull on any particular decision that we make such that we shouldn't be tension free. We have to always be weighing and balancing those tensions with everything that we do biomedically today because it's gonna get weirder and weirder and weirder. And I, 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 I have seen so many crazy things in, in the work I do uh, in sort of the private equity world for, for startup stuff that it's just unbelievable. And I constantly try to frame it in terms of promise and peril and let's hope the promise wins out. But yes, we should cultivate a greater awareness of this and definitely have a more informed conversation of it. Amazing. Um, Gary, you raised your hand. Go ahead. No, I mean, uh, I think uh, my, my question is similar to the previous one, I, you know, which was, uh, I was wondering about, like, uh, you know, how Yuval Hariri writes about um, this kind of dystopian future uh, of uh, the haves and haves nots. And, uh, you know, the, those who have... Uh, become genetically modified super species and the rest of us are uh, just regular homo sapiens. And you know, so I was thinking about it, the ethics, not only in that you can engineer, you know, perpetual youth or anything like that, but the fact that there'll be uh, different classes, there'll be a class structure of, of, of superhumans and, and lesser humans. And, you know, in a way, I wonder how, you know, in a way, when he writes about it, he talks about how flat-footed we are ethically to deal with that and in that Judaism is kind of like the basis of democracy I wonder how how we are you know how the Jewish construct for dealing with those ethical questions is yes uh, so again that's like really worthy of an entire class length response to do justice to it what I will just say is I disagree somewhat with uh, his dystopic vision in that I think that the access to these technologies will be like ubiquitous. We'll have ubiquitous access to them. Whether people choose to use them or not, is that's a separate question. But the access to them, I don't see it, you know, like many dystopic scenarios, 
suggest that only the uber wealthy will have access to said technologies. But the amazing thing is the price performance is such that these are becoming more, more accessible to the average person. I also would suggest that there are a multitude of ways, just like we have multiple intelligences, there are multiple ways to extend human intelligences, right? Like we, 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 we constantly use prosthetics to extend the capability of the physical body like a backhoe or a bulldozer, you know, anytime we use power tools, we're extending our capability beyond our hands. And we're constantly offloading in a form of mental prosthetics, all kinds of cognitive functions, especially using things like cell phones to remember all our phone numbers. And now we're starting to use other interfaces where we are uh, blending with our technology. But those, those blended moments could be like, intermittent. They could be voluntary engagements from time to time. You could also step back from it in a certain way. I think we're going to get a great diversity of responses to some of this stuff. But interestingly, in, an, in a time of abundance, to quote the title from Pio Diamandis' book, um, I, I don't think that you have, and this is part of the Jewish utopic view of the messianic age, you don't have competition, jealousy, lack and poverty because of the abundance. So what people do with their diverse abilities, I, even if they're amplified in, in more dramatic ways <laughs> than today, um, you know, it's not gonna have the same, uh, I think, uh, 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 destructive edge to it in the world. And I, I actually think that we're gonna amplify not just uh, like, uh, uh, physiological or mental capabilities, but also will do things like amplify EQ. And actually there are different types of devices like this that are actually working on this. Can we take a person who's a sociopath and like, like, and, and, and like break through that somehow augmenting their, uh, their neuroanatomy such that they have develops this wonderful uh, EQ. And the Torah actually suggests that things like this will happen, that a person who has a heart of stone won't get a heart of flesh, right? Circumcision of the heart. Like we're going to develop tremendous emotional intelligence alongside these other forms of intelligence. And I think that those help guide us in a, in a much better way for the, the benefit of the fabric of society. So again, huge question, but a little that's bit. A, that's, thank you for that answer and, and that perspective. Just a quick plug for those of you that know about JLI and Robert Chris mentioned JLI, the upcoming spring JLI course is called This Can, ha this Can Happen, which is about a better future. But this perspective on as the abilities magnify and, 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 and continue to proliferate, there will also be, please God, a groundswell of goodness, which then utilizes it for good and, and it builds on each other. That's, I think that's a huge idea. Um, Rabbi Lipsker. Mm -hmm. Please jump in. I think I saw your hand raised. Yes. Hey. Hello. You hear me? Yes. Yes. I think it was a very fascinating lecture. I was listening, like listening to you, Rabbi Crisp. And um, I just wanted to speak for a moment about, you know, this is all fascinating. And it sort of tells us that we're living through, you know, obviously we're living through unprecedented times. And is this just sort of symbolic that we're living in sort of the utopian messianic time? Or, and what's the avoda? What do, you know, what can we do sort of, which is because it sounds like almost like it's just the, the, the rate of acceleration is so amazing. Like sort of sit back and just let it unfold. 
what what's in it for us as uh, Torah interested Jews um, that were not scientists like you, the average Jed is I meaning what is what do we do with this? You know, what's the avod the angle of all of this fascinating information? So, so uh, excellent question. So the, the second Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Mitla Rebbe, has a wonderful mimer that's over 100 pages long on the expression Be'ita Achishena, which is usually read, in its time I will hasten it. And the suggestion is if we merit it, like it'll come in a, a you know, ex FedEx, you know, overnight. And, uh, and if we don't merit it, it'll come on time, but like media mail, it's slower, <laughs> right? for what's going on. So we know that we're going through this this flood of information, uh, exponential growth of information. We expect that we're gonna be generating an astounding 200 uh, uh, zettabytes of information um, in by 2025, which would represent another almost 3 billion people connected to the internet. If you don't know what that refers to, like all the information in the world up until about 2003 was about five exabytes of information. Mm -hmm. By 2010, we were creating five exabytes of new information uh, every two days uh, compared to a five year, 5,000 year period before 2003. Uh, now, uh, zettabyte is a thousand exabytes. So we're talking about um, thousands of exabytes of information being created uh, in a year, it's a flood. It's an absolute flood. And it seems to be going faster and faster and faster. So it can come on time or we can do something called accelerate it. We can actually accelerate the acceleration. We can, we can have bigger and bigger leaps. And uh, so actually one of the beautiful readings that the Rebbe has, he says, in her time, who's, who's she? It's talking about the Kala in Shira Shiram, the, the divine bride, which is the Jewish people. So like when, in, when, 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 it's it, when it's our time, like to help bring about the ultimate gula, the ultimate uh, redemption with Mashiach, when we recognize that that's the time when we have a consciousness of this, which is why the Rebbe stressed so much learning everything you can about the topic of Gula and Mashiach. So you can point with your hand and say, ah, Azia Deleg Ka'il Piseach. Then the, the lame person will jump like a gazelle and you go on the, uh, the science news and you see Yale University repairs, repairs spinal cord. You can point to it, your finger and identify it. But even more so, the more you disseminate these ideas, you can, you can, you can be what we call in physics, a jerk. Uh, jerk in physics is the acceleration of acceleration. So Bita, in her time, when we recognize and are ready for redemption, then Achishana, I will accelerate it. It can go faster and faster and faster. The more we become aware of it, the more we can accelerate the acceleration. So I hope, I hope next year already we have 10,000 times more. And that's what, uh, you know, biomedical things. And that's actually what we're seeing with AI, that there's like this bootstrapping going on right now with AI in the biomedical realm where the rate of discovery is being pushed so quickly. And quite frankly, the, the most uh, insane thing of all that I love speaking about is quantum computing, because uh, just recently from a certain standard of measurement, we, uh, quantum computers have reached what's called quantum supremacy. 
quantum supremacy is achieved through something called Nevin's Law, which is a double exponential trend, meaning that the next iteration of quantum computers might be on the order of magnitude of trillions and trillions of times the capacity of all computers on Earth. So now imagine that looking for drug discovery, where you can start to imagine personalized medicine manufactured for a market of one, just you, with no side effects at low cost. I mean, it's just astonishing to see what these things are accomplishing in our time. So we want to create the Yehudim, the unique connections between what we see going on in the world and what the Torah talks about, particularly having to do, as the Rebbe emphasized over and over and over again, with Gu'ula and Mashiach, with the ultimate redemption and messianic times, and see how these things are happening. And, and just through that and through that greater awareness, Hashem can speed it up faster and faster. I, I love it as it goes faster and faster. I don't, I don't mind being jerked along with ever greater accelerations. It, 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 you, 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 you can handle it more if you understand really what it promises to be and also mom. guide it. Mom, jump in. Okay. I just wanted to ask a question. I may have missed it, but the, there, were, there were extra about um, extra. The Mishkan had extra. It had extra more more than what you needed to, to work it the work to work it okay. uh, presumably the materials to make it like what's this extra and it actually means it's an open system the body and the universe are hackable it says that we look God looks into the Torah and he creates the world which means it's a program program written beforehand right it's programmatic and it's created through permutations of letters it's informatics so bioinformatics follows that same pattern. So if we know that, then the more we see connections in the Torah, the more we're being empowered to actually change like our biology in very profound ways. And we're seeing that all the time. We're increasing life expectancy overall. That's been the trajectory, especially in the last two centuries. And we should see that spike even more. And we're discovering more and more of these sequence, uh, secrets that are like these many languages of our biology, these many signs of life, especially now with things like the microbiome. And there's a microbiomics project to sequence the, geno the genomics of all of the gut bacteria that we have in our bodies to understand which ones we need to change our metabolism. They can affect our mental health and well-being. They can affect all kinds of uh, disease-related things and aging. So there, there's all these new languages that for the first time we're reading and we learn to read them, we learn to write with them, we learn to reprogram with them. And what that opens up for possibility is just almost utterly mind-blowing uh, if you really follow it. Amazing. I just Quick question. Kathy, did you have a question before or did you want to jump in on something? Oh, I just put it in, in, in the chat. My question was because, oh. you know, you, you talk about so many things that we can amplify now with technology, like even like emotional intelligence. And it, you know, I got me think about what about spiritual intelligence? Can we just use amplification to actually increase spirituality to some of these and use it for good? Yeah, it's very interesting. Even, even in, in a bit in the business world, I, I do a lot of uh, presentations in the, in the business world. And um, there's an incredible trend that's going on where they actually realize the best business is one that pursues spiritual intelligence. Yeah. So we have a kind of conscientious capitalism. We have a kind of 
uh, a deliberately developmental corporation where we feel that we need to work on ourselves and our relationship to others and giving and all of these types of things, that's best practice today ever before. So there is this refocusing and actually in an age of abundance, the, the places where people can uh, better differentiate themselves is not through just raw economic wealth. That's almost getting boring. It's actually like, how well do you develop your social intelligence, your emotional intelligence, your spiritual intelligence? That becomes the new focus when the material needs are by and large met. And so we're seeing this, like, you know, it takes the boat a while to turn around, but we're seeing some very dominant trends in this direction to the extent that, like, we're giving more than ever before in human history. There are more volunteer hours ever before in human history. There's more interest. Right now, one of the hottest things in, in venture capital is the well-tech space, which is mm -hmm. focusing on these things, positive psychology, happiness, spiritual, emotional, and social intelligence. All of that is, is being hyper-focused on. And it turns out it's the best for everything you do um, is to, to realize this. So we are seeing these new developments never before in history has it been like this, really unprecedented times. Okay. Amazing. All right. Um, I, I, we, we, we need to let you go. And I, I want to express my gratitude. I, I, I said before that I have one question and it's going to be a short question. Um, I don't know if the answer is going to be sure. I hope just just a quick just a, a, a quick question and, a, and and really a point. Do you see? I guess you could answer it as a theoretically yes or no. Do you see the spiritual and the physical, whether it's the scientific, the biological? Do you see that as one and the same, or mirror images of each other, or parallels separated by the? the thinnest of separations, or is it literally one and the same? In other words, this idea of eternal life, Mashiach, is it literally the genetics fused with the spirituality, or is there the spiritual and the biological, but they're working hand in hand? Is, are there two things, or is it one thing? I mean, I guess everything's one, ultimately. How do you see it? <laughs> so that, that's a really interesting question. For so long, um, we've been heading in the direction of materialism. In fact, it's to this day, many uh, academic departments, if you mention anything about a soul, vitalism, an Elan Vital, anything of the sort, they will throw you out of the biology department. They want to look at things as just having physical material building blocks whatsoever. But we have a, an idea that when we came out of Egypt, it's because we had fallen to the 49th level of impurity. And the only, like, out of... 50 total levels of impurity. By the way, the, the exodus from Egypt is mentioned exactly 50 times in the Torah, which represent these 50 gates that we exit from impurity. But we'd fall into the 49th. And we have a really interesting principle that when something becomes totally impure, it reverts back to becoming totally pure. And the same thing has happened in academia. <laughs> Not everyone's awakened to it quite yet, but we've gotten so hardcore materialistic reducing everything that we call life just to these physical building blocks. But here's the catch. By doing that, we try to look at the building blocks of those building blocks, right? So cells are made up of molecules. Molecules are made up of atoms. Atoms are made up of subatomic particles. What are those made up of? Well, one, one theory is they're made up of little vibrating filaments of energy. But look, how do we even describe that? It's so small. Well, it turns out that the best way we describe that is just like as a mathematical pattern of information. 
and that most of what we think of as solid is totally empty. You know, if, if uh, what, I don't know what the nearest mega stadium to you is down there, because I'm not an avid team sports fan, but maybe you could tell me what the biggest stadium near you is in Atlanta. Mercedes-Benz Stadium, maybe? In okay, how many people does it hold? Uh, probably between 50 and 60,000. Okay, yeah, so, so imagine that whole thing is empty. Imagine the whole thing is empty and you put a small ball in the back center of the field. And let's call that the nucleus of an atom. And that little ball seems to be the only thing in the atom that's solid. And this is the building blocks of all this material stuff. Most of it is just empty space and it's just fields of energy. But guess what? You go inside that little ball, it turns out it's also mostly empty. So ironically, what's happened is trying to make everything impure, everything just like, like spiritually impure because it's all now nothing spiritual, all material, the entire uh, trend has created something called new materialisms where we're willing that all materiality is nothing but spiritual. It's actually flipped the exact other way around. Everything is really just embodied information. There is like all physicality is dissolved into air. It's okay, dissolved into spirit. That's the long game of the Kabbalists. They're like, it's gone yeah, the whole other way. You'll around. get back there. You'll get back there. It get, you get back. Yeah. All right. Yona, I know you had a question. Go ahead. <laughs> last, last word. Jonah. Um, sure. Um, maybe thank you so much for your Torah. It's always my point to hear. Um, you mentioned at the beginning about the Sadiq, how it's an expansion from the Sad to the Sadiq and the Sadiq and that final connection. And I'm wondering if you could touch on that in other, any other areas in Yiddish Sky. I think I know that in front of it's not, no, 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 no. But is there any other, I guess, scenario where the, the expansiveness plays out? Right. So, so you know, when, when we're reading the story, of a person's life in their biography, right? You read chapter by chapter. And if you're like somewhere in the middle of the story, it often sounds like their life is total chaos. It doesn't totally make sense because you haven't seen the whole, the whole picture yet. You haven't read the whole story. And at some point, someone like explains to you, you start to see how the, like, the longer patterns as you read on as things fit together. So the same thing is true, like what we call like a world that it would be described as chaos is where there are all these pieces that don't seem to fit together in our lives, especially in our biological lives. We don't know how they fit together. And it's because we haven't read far enough in the story yet. And we don't understand why we're going through those experiences. We have no idea. But you, 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 eventually, like it gets spelled out for you. You know, it's sort of like sometimes it's a joke. Like somebody said you a joke and it was sort of like a little bit of an in-house joke. And you're like, I didn't really get that. And you're like, do I need to spell it out for you? Let me explain to you why it's funny. It's like, I have to explain to you why all the disconnected parts of life are actually really deeply connected. I got to network them together, which is what's going on right now. There are, there, there are 1200 Starlink satellites up in space at low orbit that are starting to bring the remainder of the planet. The next 3 billion people are currently not online, online, such that by 2025, we expect the entire world to be able to be connected instantly online for the first time in human history, all the entire population. There'll be no place where uh, a person's not able to get online throughout Earth, complete and total coverage. 
these these are these are like what's going on in our lives too and it's sort of like spelling out what if you're in the midst of spelling out or telling the story you can't make sense of it it's just chaotic eventually it snaps into place and woo it, it turns into something amazing that's why we refer to a kate's like an like like Kate Sam Lahoshek, Hashem places an end to darkness. We want to reach the ultimate redemption. It's like what's this end point? So an end point in in complex systems is what we call like a phase transition, or reaching a critical mass. And a, a classic example of that would be like we have all this chaotic water, you know, swishing around in this water bottle. It's liquid, right? And it just is running helter skelter in different directions. It doesn't seem to be stable at all. But guess what? I drop the temperature down below 32 degrees and it freezes into these beautiful, elegant ice crystals, right? Amazing, like, like how it shapes these beautiful designs and structures when suddenly you reach a point where more is different. So sometimes you have to add one degree colder temperature or one more letter to the sequence of spelling it out, the joke, the story, whatever it is. Ah, now I get the punchline. It is funny. This is amazing. I didn't say all this stuff fits together, but somehow it was all building to the end result. And we're getting more and more information to even see how those things fit together. We're starting to recognize these patterns by virtue of being a networked world, which is why the Tzadik Sofit, the final Tzadik, which is Mashiach, the final Geula, as it says in, in the final redemption in Perki the Reliezer, is about the Tzadik Sofit, which is about the network. If you think about it, the Rebbe's network of shluchim, of emissaries, his whole work, life's work was just setting up a decentralized network throughout the world. So instead of Starlink satellites, it's like Chabad houses all over the world, right? That's networking the world together. And once you have a critical number of links in the network, new emergent connections and patterns start to emerge that allow you to see things that you couldn't make sense of in history before. Incredible. Rabbi Crisp, uh, what can we say? What can I say other than I'm blown away. I think you blew all of us away with this, with your knowledge and your ability to explain these ideas to all of us. Um, thank you so much for these two sessions. It was expressed last week in the chat uh, how much everybody enjoyed it, how much many, at least those that were chatting, but I think speak on behalf of everybody. Um, please, God, we'll have more opportunities to, uh, to get together. I want to thank you. And I want to thank all of you for participating it's great to see you. May we indeed, and as we're in this time period, getting ready for Passover, may we indeed experience the liberation from all of our pharaohs, all of our Egypts, all of the internal and external uh, constraints that hold us back. And we, may we celebrate Passover, Lashana Habab Yerushalayim, in that state after the tipping point when the final piece, which seemed maybe like a small piece, as you just said, finally snaps together. Ah, we got it. And indeed, we will have, please God, redemption. All right, Lila Tov, everybody, thank you again. Thank you so we'll see much. You soon. Thank you so All much. Right. Thank, you. thank you, everybody. Thank you. Have a good night. Good night.